This sermon, Living Hopeful in a Hard World, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, January 15th, 2023, at Sovereign Grace Church. Acts 23, verse 12. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 35. I think this might this may be the shortest text that we have for the rest for the and our for the rest of our time in the book of Acts. Uh, but what an amazing text it is. We're actually going to begin reading in verse 11. So if you would stand with me, let's read God's word together. Acts 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also in Rome. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than, four, more than 40 who, had, who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for then for then 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you inform me of these things. And then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor, Felix, greetings. This man is, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. 
And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they entered to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what providence he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, already you have been revealing yourself to your people. When your church gathers, you are present, not merely for your presence sake, but to give testimony of yourself. And Lord, that testimony continues now as we look to your word. Lord, I pray that as you give testimony to yourself that as the one you have called to preach this morning, that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might give a faithful testimony, that my testimony might be from my own heart that has been affected by your word already. Lord, for all here who will be listening I pray that that you would open ears to hear, that your testimony would not merely result in something to talk about or a little knowledge gained, but that it would speak to our hearts, that it would encourage the souls that are weary, that it would convict the souls that are neglecting you goodness and your glory even now, and that for those who do not know you, they would be saved for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Peace instead of anxiety. Patience in adversity. Gratitude instead of bitterness. Perseverance through trials, humility in prosperity, and contentment in poverty, hopefulness in the face of the unknown. Quite a list, huh? (laughs) Where did these things come from? Ultimately, they are the fruit of the Spirit's work in us. I think we would agree on that. But I think we would also agree that that the Spirit works through our faith. And so we experience things like peace instead of anxiety, humility and prosperity, gratitude instead of bitterness, as we secure in Christ trust that our Heavenly Father is sovereignly ruling over our lives. Whatever would define your life right now, believing 
that your heavenly Father who loves you is sovereignly ruling over your life in all things, at all times, and in every way. There's a word that, there's a word for that. It's called providence. Providence. God working all things together, bringing all things to his intended purposes. It's mysterious and mind-blowing if you really take a moment to think about it. But believing God is in control and at work in all things to accomplish his redemptive purposes, even though we can't fully understand how that works, well, believing that he is a providential God is foundational to living hopeful in a hard world. Derek Thomas says it plainly. A firm faith in the providence of God is the solution for all earthly problems. Well, today's text is a wonderful illustration of God's providence. And my prayer has been this week that that the result of this morning would be a greater trust in God no matter what lot you have in life right now. That you would leave here today more convinced not only that God is for you, but that indeed God is in control. That you would leave here this morning Whatever it is that that would cause you to define life as hard and you would say from your heart with faith and genuine hopefulness, God's got this. God's got this. Two points this morning to that end. First, man's plan to kill Paul, and then we'll see God's plan to protect Paul. Man's plan to kill Paul. If you were here last week, you watched on as Paul was viciously slandered and assaulted. He was publicly rejected for speaking truth. And then he was violently threatened by leadership, right? What a day and a half. All of that happened in 36-ish hours. And guess what? It's not over yet. We left Paul last week sitting safely in his barracks and even being ministered to by Christ himself. Take courage. I have a plan for you. You will go to Rome, which means you will not die tonight. (laughs) So we pick up with Paul who even... As he sits safely in his barracks, he's freshly encouraged by the Savior to take courage and press on in the mission. Even then, as he is experiencing the peace of God, there are bloodthirsty men conspiring against him. The men that, we, that you read about in the first few verses, they were probably Jewish zealots, But I will tell you this, they were dangerous. In some ways, they were the equivalent of what we would call terrorists. Paul is in trouble. This group will stop at nothing to see him dead. 
and their conspiracy proves it. Notice verse 12 as this plan begins to unfold. It says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. But that, that's resolve. <laughs> verse 13 says that there were more than 40 who made this oath. 40 men in on this conspiracy. And the first thing that we see that reminds us how serious they are is they swore an oath with each other. They swore an oath before God. In fact, we'll learn, they told the council and the chief elders, the Sanhedrin, that they swore an oath not to eat or drink until Paul had been dispatched of. Well, that Greek word translated oath, it's anathema. It, it means curse. These guys wanted Paul dead so badly that they put themselves under a curse, a curse that would go something like this. Let God do to us and more if we eat or drink before Paul is dead. Let God strike us down. If we eat or drink before Paul is dead. You ever seen in those, those, uh, you know, those movie scenes where uh, you know, um, a group is about to go, there's some mission going on, and inevitably there's a, there's a moment where the leader rises up and says, listen, this is going to be hard. And I understand if you're not all in, you can leave now. No one will judge you. But if you stay, you're in all the way. That, that, that's, that's these men. We will not eat or drink before Paul is dead. And if we do, let God do to us. These guys are serious. I know Paul's safe in the barracks, freshly encouraged by the Lord, but outside those doors, there is something brewing, and it's serious. And what they do is they plan an assassination. Notice verse 14. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, in other words, now here's your part. We need your help. We're serious. We are going to kill this guy, but we need your help. And so they, they tell them, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though they were going to deter determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. The very next verse, it's called an ambush, and that's what it is, right? It's a violent ambush. This is how it's all going to go down. The Sanhedrin is going to convince this Roman tribune to send Paul to them so that they can have a fair and civilized hearing to resolve their religious conflicts right. And on the way, this small army of bloodthirsty men will ambush and kill Paul on the spot. And in some ways, this is a match made in heaven. Uh, the Sanhedrin hated Paul for his gospel. 
they were no doubt angry that he got away. He may be under arrest, but they realize that the tribune is being kind to Paul and sparing him from their wrath. The zealot sect hated Rome, probably knew that Rome, probably knew that Paul was a Roman citizen. They were a match made in heaven. So this is an ugly, vicious, dangerous scene. I, I, you know, it's so hard for us to be able to get into Paul's shoes, to be able to get into the moment and feel the danger. You could slice it. It was so thick. We know the story, and so it's easy for us to just blow by it. But Paul, beloved Paul, the man called by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, the one who, who would pen so much of the New Testament, the apostle who would plant churches and care for churches. His life is really on the line. Now, the goal here is to understand God's word and to apply it, right? James 1, James 1, 22, don't, don't be just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And, you know, I, I doubt anyone here has a terroristic mob conspiring to kill them today. If you do, please just pause right now, call 911, <laughs> and then come see a pastor, because <laughs> you're in danger. But you know what? We all do have a ferocious and formidable enemy bent on destroying us. I love what James Montgomery Boyce says. He says, our enemy is Satan, whom the Bible describes as a roaring lion. He's quoting from 1 Peter 5 here. Whom the Bible describes as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan is an extremely fierce foe, and he is all the more dangerous because he is a spiritual being, and we cannot see him. If Paul's out on the streets, he could recognize the mob and run. (laughs) We cannot see Satan. We know how he works, but we cannot see him. Moreover, although Satan is for himself and not others, not even for the world itself in its opposition to God, there is nevertheless... Nevertheless, a certain cooperation between Satan and the world so that Satan uses it and the world uses him. (laughs) The zealots and the Sanhedrin. Satan and the world. We have our own formidable enemy. And if you want an apologetic for your presence here on Sunday morning, if you want an apologetic for the value and importance of community group, if you want an apologetic for having genuine Christ-centered fellowship with others, here's your apologetic, Satan. He's a formidable enemy. Is he invincible? No. But he is formidable. And he can wreak havoc in your life. Our hearts, like sheep, they're prone to wander from the flock to the fence line, aren't they? And that 
That makes us vulnerable to Satan's schemes. Satan would like nothing more than to isolate you from God's people and wreak havoc in your relationship with God. And this is not the primary application here, but it is an application. Are you aware you have a formidable enemy? Oh, he can't take you from Christ, but he can become destructive in your relationship with Christ. He can rob you of the blessings that Christ has for you. He can lead you into sin that will suck you dry. I encourage you to do a a Bible study on the 35 one another's in Scripture. There's a reason that they're in there. God has made us dependent on him, and one way that we are dependent on him is we are dependent on one another. I encourage you to reorient your personal and family calendar to church life. Don't miss it. That's exactly what Satan wants. I encourage you to understand your hospitality as an opportunity for sanctification. As you socialize, hang out with one another, move into fellowship, Christ-centered conversation as often as possible so that your souls, not just your belly, but your soul will be fed as you hang with your friends. Our fellowship together, living life with one another is a primary means of God's grace to protect and grow his people. And if you're new around here, that's why it always has and it always will be a priority at Sovereign Grace Church. It's doubtful you have terrorists after you. But Satan is out there prowling around like a lion. Worse. So Paul's enemies had a plan, point one. But guess what? So did God. God's plan to protect Paul. Uh, I thought about Psalm 147, verse 5 this week as I looked at this part of the passage. Psalm 147, 5 describes God as being, be, his, be, that, that he is beyond measure in his being. That's what we mean when we describe God as infinite. In his being and his greatness, he has no limitations. And that includes the resources to bring about his sovereign will in your life. We never know how God is at work, and we never know who he may work through. But we can be assured that he is working and he can work his sovereign will in your life in any way that he chooses. And what happens next? Who God uses in this dangerous, dangerous situation Paul is in is actually quite a surprise. It's actually quite a surprise. Notice verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to say. 
Did you know that Paul had a sister? Did you know that Paul had a nephew? Well, the only way you would is if you're familiar with this passage. We don't know much about Paul's family because Scripture is basically silent. We can conclude that his father was a Pharisee from chapter from verse from from verse six of this chapter because he says, "I am a son of Pharisees." We can infer that his family rejected him because of his faith from Philippians three eight. For the sake of Christ, I had suffered. I have suffered the loss of all things. And then there's our text today. Paul had a sister. Don't know her name. Guess God thinks we don't need to know her name. And his sister had a boy. That means Paul had a nephew. No name to this nephew. No history. How old was he? I don't know. He must have been young because in verse 19, we see that the tribune took him by the hand. That would be kind of odd if he was an adult. How did his nephew learn of this conspiracy? Luke doesn't tell us. If he was a teenager, was he a religious prodigy like his uncle, already exposed to the priestly rank, so he might have heard rumblings? I don't know. Was he just in the right place at the right time to hear about the plot? We don't know. No name, no history, nothing. All we know about Paul's nephew is that he suddenly appears out of nowhere. This young man, this one young man, has no prior place in Scripture and no future place in Scripture. And yet, as we will see, he is at the heart of God's plan to deliver Paul from sure death and make sure that Paul gets to roam with the gospel just as verse 11 says. I mean, imagine if, imagine Paul's response, sitting in the barracks, probably just meditating on those words, take courage. And this boy walks in. <laughs> Johnny? What are you doing here? How, how did you get here? Boy tells him, oh, who boy am I glad you're here. You need to go tell the tribune right now. We read this and it doesn't look good for Paul. But you never know. You can never underestimate God. A couple of months ago, I was in, Don and I were in Tampa Bay, and we were visiting my brother, and he took me to a, a Buccaneers football game, Buccaneers and the Rams. Awful, awful game. <laughs> I mean, it was, 
the Bucs had scored, I think, a field goal. And there's four minutes left in the game. They're down by two touchdowns. And with about four minutes of the game, I noticed people are piling out of the stands. And I leaned over to my brother and I said, don't these people know Tom Brady's their quarterback? <laughs> the game is never over. <clears throat> and Tom Brady's your quarterback, as much as I, that kills me to say. <clears throat> Publicly. <laughs> Four minutes left. Tom Brady marches the Bucks down the field, two touchdowns. Never underestimate God. He is beyond measure. He'll use an obscure little boy to rescue Paul from this dangerous assassination plot. Now, in verses 18 through 22, the boy's taken to the tribune. He fills him in on the plot, and he is sent home never to be heard from again in Scripture. But God continues to work. Notice verse 23. Then he called to the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul. Just provide him horses to ride. Paul is not walking. For Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So here you go. This is like a presidential motorcade. You ever seen a presidential motorcade? Right, president rolls in the town, and it's black SUV after black SUV. I mean, talk about protection. Talk about safety. Talk about a show of strength. Well, listen, uh, add a little dust and a lot of manure smell, and you have right here a first century Roman motorcade. If you do the math in verse 23, you will find there are at least 470 heavenly, heavily armed soldiers. And they are making first a 35-mile track halfway and then another 30 miles to Caesarea. That's the plan. In verse 32, we, the plan was to take Paul by night to, to Antipatris, which was the halfway point before, between Jerusalem and Caesarea. And from there, the foot soldiers would return to Jerusalem. And I would submit that's probably because, as some commentators say, this motorcade would have severely depleted the Roman forces that were there to guard and protect the temple. And now listen, one could argue, well, the roads outside Jerusalem were dangerous this night. Yes, they were. Bandits and robbers. And of course, there is this mob that you never know when they're going to show up. One could argue, yeah, well, Paul was a Roman citizen, and that meant something. Sure it did. But still... A man whose name they didn't even know two days ago has a military escort with official governmental papers. You noticed that Paul had papers at verse 25, and he wrote a letter to the governor. So he has papers. He has this unbelievable motorcade going on. 
He's being treated like some kind of VIP. He's not walking. He's riding. Something happens to his horse. They brought an extra horse for him. All this to resolve a religious conflict. Who could explain this? First, a little boy shows up out of nowhere. Never heard of him before. And now, a 470-strong escort. Military escort with official papers. Love the hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. I don't know if you've caught this yet, but did you notice how many times in our text there is a mention of God, a reference to Jesus, or the Holy Spirit? Did you count them? Anybody count them? We're always taught, right, to look for God and Jesus in the Spirit when we read the text. Anybody count them? Guess how many? Zero. Zero. And yet the Lord was in the midst of it all. The Lord was there. Causing the events of Paul's ordeal to fulfill his plans. If you will, the invisible hand of God orchestrating, protecting, and furthering his divine will with and through Paul. But by the way, the invisible hand, I, didn't, I stole that from R.C. Sproul. <laughs> if you've never read this book, the invisible hand, uh, you want a lesson in the doctrine of providence? I'd encourage you to read this. He helps you understand God's providence, not just in a general way, but what does that look like in government? What does that look like in suffering? What does it look like in the secular world? It's outstanding. I'd encourage you to read it. But right now, go back to verse 11. I just want to remind us that this verse 11 is so important, not only to last week's text, but this week's text. The following light, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I submit to you that, that our text, chapter 23, verses 12 to 35, is a demonstration in the kindness of God, he gives us a demonstration of why Paul can take courage. The Lord follows up his encouraging words to Paul with a divine, let me just show you what I mean. <laughs> let me just show you what my faithfulness can look like. Let me just show you. I, I, I exhort you, take courage, don't give up. I have a plan. And let me show you how in control I am. Let me show you how sure my plan is. And guess what? 
the next day, Paul wakes up 60 miles closer to Rome. Don't know where the mob is. But Paul continues his mission. Now, I don't know what God's providence looks like in your life today. It may be bitter, it may be sweet, it may be a little of both. But I know this, before the Lord stands by you, and this is key to his providence, before the Lord stands by you today, he stood for you 2,000 years ago. He stood in your place at Calvary so that you could have a place in his kingdom. And the work that he accomplished on the cross cannot be thwarted. Romans 8 is sure, 31 through 39, that no one can separate you from the love of Christ. Christ took courage in the face of divine wrath so you could receive divine love by faith. And there is no greater act of God's providence. Whatever is going on in your life right now, there's no greater act of God's providence than your salvation. You didn't make that happen. I didn't make that happen. He did. (laughs) In his timing, when you were running your hellbound race, when I was indifferent to the cost, he, in his providence, fulfilled his will that was determined before the foundations of the world that you would belong to him. He orchestrated it all. And now, just as we see him doing with Paul, In verse 11, he stands with you. In fact, notice this imagery. Look at the imagery in verse 19. The tribune took him by the hand. That is the nephew, the boy, the young boy. The tribune took him by the hand. I don't know why Luke included that detail. Maybe there was something in terms of tradition Maybe there was something just in terms of etiquette. But it does pop off the page as a wonderful picture of the Lord taking us by the hand. Imagine this little boy. He had no idea what was going on. He just got news that uncle was in trouble. This Perhaps very intimidating, no doubt. It'd be intimidating for an adult. Mixed up in an assassination plot. Perhaps it was just to comfort him. Our Heavenly Father takes us by the hand. He stood in our place on the cross, and now he stands beside us 
We heard a wonderful devotional this morning before pre-service prayer. By the way, come to pre-service prayer. You want to equip and prepare your soul for this? Come to pre-service prayer. As we were reminded before we prayed that Jesus stands by us. Right now, he's interceding for you. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever hardship you have, whatever adversity you're experiencing, whatever unknown has you under the bed shaking, Jesus stands not only with you, but he stands before the throne of God interceding for you. As God works his perfect will. Now, here's the thing about providence. Um, I'm glad you're here this morning so that we can all be reminded of this together. But you know, one of the things about providence is that we often don't see it in the moment, do we? Paul had no idea what's going on. I doubt Paul connected this little boy with, oh, man, the Lord's cooking something up. I love what the English Puritan said, the providence of God is like a Hebrew word. It can only be read backwards. It's true. And this is why we must live conscious of God's providence every day. We we must be intentional about it. The Lord's words of verse 11, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Those words, no doubt, mercifully ministered to Paul in his dark moment. But I would submit, how many times do you think Paul revisited those words after that? That 60-mile trek, dusty, hard, always on the lookout for bandits at night. I would submit Paul probably clung to the words of the Lord to him. I would submit to you, Paul continually revisited those words. I submit to you, Paul preached those words to himself. And I would submit more than we can imagine. And here's what I want us to see for us. God's spoken word to Paul is his written word to us. It's his written word to us. We may not understand God's providence. We may not see it in the moment, but we can live mindful that our God is a God of providence and be encouraged by it so that when we are in the dark moments, it becomes a reflex for us to preach to ourselves, I can take courage. I can be patient. I can put on humility. I can be hopeful even though I don't know how this is going to turn out. Why? Because I know from God's word that he is a God of providence and that means that he has not left me nor forsaken me, but he is working all things. Yes, even this thing that is so hard and so perplexing for my good. He's advancing his mission in and through me. And I don't have to understand it all. I can just rest 
because I know the one who has revealed himself to me. He is the God of providence who not even my greatest foe, Satan, can thwart. The gates of hell cannot prevail against God's people. So this is our application this morning. To be intentional about writing the words of God on our hearts. I want to give you three passages. There's more, but three passages. Turn to Proverbs 16, 9. Three passages that will preach providence to your soul. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way, human responsibility, but the Lord establishes his steps, God's sovereignty, providence. Turn to Matthew 10, verse 29. Actually, you don't have to turn there. It looks like most of you are writing. I don't hear any pages flipping, so. <laughs> Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Take courage. You are of more value than many sparrows. You are a child of the king. And the king will protect his children. Romans 8. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those, actually verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Notice verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God, God was for Paul, who cares about 40 men resolved to kill him? And they'll die themselves doing it. Ha! The Lord will bring a little boy into the picture. Who cares if there's bandits and robbers and, and these mobsters could ambush Paul? God will throw together 470 soldiers from the smallest thing to the biggest thing. God is for us. Who can be against us? And you know the passage. Study it this week. It goes on to say nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. I just submit to you, Proverbs 16, 9, Matthew 10, Romans 8, 28 through 39, muse over them. Memorize them. Meditate on them. Bask in them. Revel. Revel in God's 
words to you. Isn't it wonderful? We have this book. God's self-revelation that we can go back to over and over and over again to feed our souls. Do that with these. Preach these passages and others as often as you can to yourself so that providence doesn't have to be something we always look back on. But it can be something that we can rest in, in the moment. Joel Beek says, the more the believer is conscious of God's providence, the more it can be said of him, as B.B. Warfield wrote, everywhere he sees God in his mighty stepping, everywhere he feels the working of his mighty arm, the throbbing of his mighty.